Welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory Garay, TJ Beater, and Kathy Garay. Each week, we talk about the connections between owners and their pets with an emphasis on topics that apply to greyhounds. If you want to hear more about your best friend, stay tuned. Now, here are your hosts. Hey, welcome to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. We have a great show in store for you today, but before we get into that, we have two huge announcements. We at Greyhounds Make Great Pets have hired a public relations person. We can't tell you who that person is or the firm it is. Wait, now most of you from the public might be asking, why would you not tell the public who your public relations person is? And I would agree with you on that. And if it was true, I'd be skating on cracked ice. Greyhound supporters, stop skating on thin, cracked ice. Demand real leadership for the Greyhounds in sports. But now, a real announcement. Last week on this show, we put out the offer for the big, huge Greyhound debate. And we here at Greyhounds Make Great Pets are happy to announce that we are in the process of scheduling this debate. So stay tuned for further shows. We'll be announcing the date time of the big Greyhound debate between Mr. John Parker and Mr. Carrie Thiel. Now, Kathy, take it away. All righty. Well, right now, I would like to bring on our favorite Georgia Peach resident co-host, John Parker, who will be in the captain's chair today on Greyhounds Make Great Pets. John, welcome back. Thanks, Kathy. Good to be back. Nice to have you as always, and I know you've got um, a great show and a super guest lined up. So, hey, Rory, let's take our uber-huge egos and our suitcase full of rules and see what kind of social media fracas we can churn up, and we can let John bring on our fabulous guest today on GMGP. Okay. Well, thanks, Kathy. Uh, we're, we're glad to have today on making a reappearance on Greyhounds Make Great Pits. Greyhound historian Charlie Blanning, who is the author of the recently published book, The Greyhound and the Hare. And by the way, if you haven't purchased your copy yet, uh, do so soon because supplies are diminishing, and once the first printing is sold, it's very likely there won't be a second printing. You can uh, find the books online at YPD Books, or you can go to Facebook where The Greyhound and the Hare has its own uh, Facebook page, and just click on the Shop Now button, and that will take you uh, right to the YPD Books uh, uh, site where you can purchase the book. Uh, <clears throat> once they're all gone, you'll be buying it on eBay in a few years for many multiples the current price, so don't, uh, don't delay. Charlie, welcome. Hi, John. Good to hear your voice again. We're going to talk today about... Um, Charlie's picks for the greatest greyhounds of history, and um, always subjective, of course, but if anybody knows who the greats are, it would be uh, Charlie, who's probably the preeminent greyhound historian of our day. Uh, and Charlie, I thought before, there's always discussions and debates when uh, discussing who the great athletes of any particular sport were, whether they're human, canine, or equine, uh, and you know, there's always comparisons from one player uh, or participant decades ago versus the ones of today. And so I thought it might be useful to our listeners to talk a little bit about the kind of the differences between coursing and racing. And uh, when we're talking about coursing, everybody, we're not talking about lure coursing, we're talking about hair coursing. And so I thought it might be useful to our listeners to understand a little better as we compare these greyhounds through history of the different um, tests that coursing puts on on greyhounds versus uh, what racing does. So, so first, tell us a little bit about um, uh, the the just the typical duration in time uh, of a of a hair course in coursing. Well, coursing, if it's open coursing, can make quite huge demands on the greyhound because there are no limits to the length of the course. The, the length of the course, the, 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 the limit that the dog has to run is, of course, set by the hare, which the dog is pursuing while the hare is trying to escape. So it's possible for, um, in a small field, for a course to be really of 
quite short. I mean, no more than the same duration as, say, a race on the track, some 30 seconds. And yet, I have witnessed courses in um, the open sometimes running on for minutes, minutes and minutes, so that eventually, in some cases, the dogs actually stop. They've had enough, and they say, right, goodbye, and, 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 and that's the end of it. They'll, they'll turn away and, and look desperately for their owners. So, I mean, how long is a piece of string, of course, is, is perhaps the answer. But yes. the demands which can be made um, can be extreme. And then uh, let's talk a little bit about the terrain over which they they run. Our listeners who are familiar with racing, of course, will know that uh, racing is run on a groomed sand track, oval track, uh, varying lengths, typical five-sixteenths of a mile, sometimes three-eighths of a mile. Uh, and then what kind of terrain did the, did the coursing greyhounds run over in open coursing? Well, there again, of course, it was many and various. Um, when coursing uh, became popular um, in the early 19th century. They would be running over the downs of southern England, which were almost limitless because there were no boundaries. And um, there weren't hedges or fences or anything to stop the greyhounds. On the other hand, if they ran in the northwest of England, say at Altcar, where the famous Waterloo Cup used to take place, those fields were intersected by drainage ditches. And so uh, frequently the courses would come to an end because the hare would manage to jump the ditch and the dogs would stop. Um, some of the, the dogs, however, <laughs> were, 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 were brilliant and even trained, especially right from being small puppies, to jump those ditches because it was um, in some cases that if the the judge who was deciding which of the two dogs was, going, was winning the course, he might in fact decide that if a dog didn't jump a ditch like that, then he wouldn't give it the, you know, give it the result. So um, sometimes uh, greyhounds were actually called upon to um, jump ditches, hurdle hedges, and would be duly penalized if they didn't. So the, the countryside was, was um, considerably considerably varied, whereas, should we say, in coursing in the United States when it started, um, in around about the 1870s, because, of course, the coursing took mainly place mainly in the Midwest, uh, famously in Kansas and Nebraska and Missouri and places like that, there again, the, the, the sky was the limit, or at least the skyline was. And then last but not least, let's talk about frequency. Of course, in racing, uh, a greyhound will be called upon to, to race one time every three or four days uh, here in the United States, and I think it's about the same in, in England and Ireland. Uh, whereas in coursing, how many, day, how many times would a dog be called on to run in a single day? And then, and then in a big meeting like the Waterloo Cup, how many times would they be running over three days? Tell us a little about that. Well, at a one-day meeting, uh, normally the dogs were arranged in eight dog stakes, which called upon them to run three times during the day. Uh, as far as the Waterloo Cup was concerned, uh, the number of runners was always 64, which means the dogs had to run six courses to win. And that was evenly divided between the three days of the meeting. So they would run two courses on each day, if if they were to, um, to, re you know, to reach the final, and they they would be courses which would vary sometimes between as short as say thirty seconds, and on other occasions they could run for three or four minutes. Um, so it, it was it, 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 the the actual demand on the winner. <laughs> it might be probably um, you know, true, true to say that. Of course, the dog which ran the shortest courses had the advantage when they came to the last day. And frequently, the uh, Waterloo Cup was decided not so much by which dog was the fastest or the best, but by the dog which had managed to enjoy good luck and run shorter courses. Right. 
So I know, and I suspect some of the great greyhounds we'll be discussing today were Waterloo Cup winners. And so, if I'm hearing you right, uh, to win the Waterloo Cup or a big meeting like that, uh, the greyhound would have to run a total of six times, twice a day, uh, for three days. That's that's quite a feat. Yes, yes, that's correct. It, 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 we one always said that no bad greyhound ever won the, ever won the Waterloo Cup. Because even yes. though the winner might have enjoyed better luck than its opponents, it still would have been, um, you know, subjected to a, 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 what we always call the ultimate test of the greyhound. Absolutely. Well, let's get right into it, uh, and uh, I think we're going to go. If I if I remember correctly, we're going to go approximately um, uh, chronologically. Uh, so, tell yes. us your first great greyhound. Right, well, my first great greyhound, and I'm, I'm not ordering these in a sort of top ten hit parade. Uh, these are just ten, I think, of the most significant greyhounds which ever lived, and also they, they are arranged chronologically. And so the first one is a bitch, in fact, and she was called Tsarina, and she first saw the light of day, would you believe, in 1781. Tsarina belonged to the famous Earl of Orford, who was the great breeder of greyhounds at the time, and also the the great promoter of the sport. The the Earl of Orford was the man who was very much um, behind the formation of the first ever coursing club, which was at Swaffham in 1776. And so Sarina, which is most famous greyhound, uh, she was named, I think, after Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, because the Earl of Orford, because of his endless experiments in breeding greyhounds and all the time that he took uh, running greyhounds, unfortunately found himself in rather poor financial way. And so he got together the various masterworks of, of art which his family had collected over two or three generations and sold them to Catherine the Great. So perhaps out of gratitude for the money that he received in exchange, he called his best greyhound Tsarina. Uh, you can still see those paintings. They're in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg to this day. By the way, I was, I was remiss, and I forgot to mention, for those of you who have... Uh, your own copy of the Greyhound and the Hare. We're going to be, uh, since radio is only a, a virtual uh, medium, we can't really show you pictures. We're going to have you, if you would like to, follow along uh, with our discussion here, and uh, we'll tell you, uh, Charlie, if you will, each time with each dog, if you'll mention where in the in the book that this can be found. Zarina, by the way, is found on page 32 of the book. Uh, if you want to see a, a painting of uh, of her, and then we'll mention uh, each uh, each page as we go through the dog. So, Charlie, on to uh, back to Zarina. What uh, what what amazing feats did she accomplish? Well, Zarina um, ran in forty seven matches. Now, matches were very popular at the time because it was only um, at a period in coursing when stakes. In other words, which would in, um, involve, say, 8, 16, 32, 64, sometimes 128 dogs, which became popular at the end of the 1800s. In the period that we're talking about, most coursing competitions were simply run as a match between two dogs. This was very much the same in horse racing of the period as well. The great races, um, which became popular at this particular time, the Derby, the Oaks, and the St. Ledger, were really a revolution in horse racing, because up until then, matches were much more important and much more popular, and the same applied to coursing. So Tsarina ran 47 matches in which she was never beaten. Uh, She was quite phenomenal bitch, and we know that she ran not just at home in the county of Norfolk, where the Earl of Orford lived, but also in Yorkshire and Wiltshire, so that she proved herself over all sorts of different kinds of ground. And it was when Tsarina was running her last match, and we even know the date, 
it's the 5th of December, 1791, that the Earl of Orford uh, came to see her, run her final match, and as the, um, the decision was given to say that Tsarina was the winner, he took his hat off to the bitch and dropped dead off the back of his pony. Quite a story. So, quite, now, what was, so, the, quite, what was Tsarina's uh, impact on the, on the breed? Well, enormous, because um, after Paul, uh, the, the poor Earl of Orford had, had died, the course was at Newmarket, by the way. We even know where it took place. Um, and um, she was bought by someone called Colonel Thornton, and he used her. He managed to get a litter from her, and she whelped um, a dog called Claret. And Claret became a most marvelous stud dog and sire, and... Any greyhound that you might have uh, lying on your sofa at the moment, uh, looking up at you, has got a bit of claret and a bit of Tsarina in them. That's amazing. Now, who's our next one? Our next one. Well, our next one is by the famous claret. And this was a dog called Snowball. And Snowball was whelped in 1796. And... Snowball was by Claret, the, um, the son of Tsarina, out of a bitch called Phyllis, and he, he belonged to someone called Major Topham. And Snowball, who, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> the way that people name greyhounds, was black, by the way. You would accept him, of <laughs> course, to, to have been white, but he was black. And he proved himself, as um, Tsarina, his grandmother, had, had done before him, to be the the best greyhound in England. Uh, Major Topham, when he wasn't actually being a military man, was a journalist, and he published a magazine called The World, so he was, a, he was pretty good at public relations, and he never undersold Snowball, he just simply always referred to him as the greatest greyhound that has ever run. And at the time, well, I expect he was, because he won four cups, several what were known as couples, those were silver collars, which were often given as trophies at the time. He won 10 pieces of plate and over 40 matches. So he was a, 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 a pretty good greyhound. And if you're lucky enough to have a copy of the book, uh, you'll find Snowball's portrait um, on page 38 to 39. It was painted just in time because I understand that he died a week after the, the, the painting the painting was made. But he was the most fabulous greyhound, uh, celebrated in verse um, by Sir Walter Scott, nonetheless, um, and he was a legend of the time. And his, when he went to stud at the princely farm, by the way, of three guineas, so the major wasn't exactly asking too much from the people who took bitches to him. He was a fabulous success at stud. Uh, Snowball, uh, his great ability was to pass on speed to his his progeny, and he was as famous as a stud dog as he was as an actual runner, a great, great greyhound. And there again, if you scratch your greyhound, I think you'll find a bit of Snowball in him somewhere. And uh, who's our next one after Snowball? Well, let's move on to the big one the dog that everyone knows, and if you say to a lot of people, you know, name me a, name me a greyhound, um, still a lot of people would reply, the peerless Master McGrath. Master McGrath uh, was whelped in 1876, and he was um, an Irish greyhound which belonged to um, a Lord Lurgan, but although uh, Lord Lurgan owned Master McGrath, um, Lurgan is in what is now Northern Ireland, uh, Master McGrath actually was bred by a man called James Galway at a place called Colligan Lodge in County Waterford, which is much, of course, much further south. Lord Lurgan and James Galway were what they called at the time Confederates, so that Galway would breed the greyhounds and they would run in Lurgan's name. And Master McGrath proved himself the greatest greyhound 
um, that had ever lived up to that time because he won the Waterloo Cup no fewer than three times, which was thought to be impossible um, and had been rarely matched, one has to say. He was a, um, a only, what's what man only call a popular, a popular hero of the time and so popular that he was actually presented to Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle by the Queen's request. And he was taken there on the 1st of March, 1871, after he'd won his third Waterloo Cup and was given a royal audience. Unfortunately, photographs were taken of him at the time in Windsor. Those four photographs survive. And there is one of them, actually, in the book. Um, if you want to see a photograph of Master McGrath, a picture of Master McGrath, then the page perhaps to look at um, as, you, as, as you listen is page 328. There's a nice picture of Master McGrath there which shows him as he actually was. He was, in fact, even for the day, a very small dog. He only weighed, it's thought, perhaps 55 or 56 pounds, which was small even for the time. But he was devastatingly fast and brave and a marvellous coursing dog. Um, and, as I say, a popular hero, celebrated in song. The Dubliners, the popular Irish group, still sing the Ballad of Master McGrath, and um, um, portraits and pottery images and statues. Um, he, he, he was a legend, a legend in his own lifetime. I know there are a number of uh, different stories about how he's got how he got his name. Uh, what's your uh, What's your take on the most accurate of those? Well, it's impossible to tell. What we do know is that when he won the Waterloo Cup for the first time, and he was being led back after he won his final course, that Lord Lurgan actually said that he was named after the, an orphan boy who reared him, who, who brought Master McGrath up. Now, the master part of the name is neither here nor there, because Lord Logan called all his greyhounds, all his greyhound dogs, master this or master that. So all we know for certain is that the McGrath bit um, was, was taken from someone who had been involved with rearing Master McGrath, um, Favorite candidates um, is, is, is Johnny McGrath, who certainly was, a, if not an orphan, at least his father was dead. Um, however, <laughs> other candidates, uh, when, when, when Master McGrath won the Waterloo Cup for the first time, James Galway was reported in a local Waterford paper as rewarding someone called Michael McGrath for bringing the dog up. And as... Um, Mr. Galway also generously gave money to all sorts of McGraths, as well as Michael. It would be difficult to describe Michael as an orphan. He seemed to have an awful lot of relations who, who, who got rewarded by um, Mr. Galway at the time. Um, and so it goes on. Someone, someone else swore that, um, he was, that, that, that the McGrath bit of it was a local schoolmaster who brought the dog up. And so it goes on. And Michael... Um, Master McGrath was the sort of dog around legends quickly gathered. And um, so we shall never know the real truth, but there are plenty of marvelous stories about him, one has to say. Uh, I, I, we discussed in the lead-in, uh, we, we have a few seconds left to discuss him, uh, about the dogs being trained to jump ditches. What, what, isn't one story that uh, the young lad that raised him uh, taught him to jump the ditches by standing on the other side and having the dog run and jump to him? That, that, that's, that's absolutely correct. That was Johnny McGrath, and he used to stand on uh, the, at one end of the field with a, a, a ditch in between them, and um, Master McGrath would have to jump the ditch you know, to get to, to, to his beloved owner. And certainly this was absolutely key when he won the Waterloo Cup for the second time in 1869 because he took on... a most marvellous bitch called Babbitt the Bowster, and he only managed to win the course because there was a, a drainage ditch across the middle of the field called the Withens, uh, which um, they ran on, and Master McGrath jumped it better than Babbitt the Bowster, 
and that that gave him the edge to to win to win the course. Um, one thing we might say just before we, we leave them uh, is with Marcel McGrath and and Lord Lurgan, but the extraordinary amounts of money which they gambled and won at the time, and. Uh, Lord Lurgan is, is, is rumoured to have won, according to some press reports, when McGrath won for the first £110,000 in bets, which in modern money is £750,000. So we're talking about, what, $850,000? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, we've, um, yeah. John, uh, Charlie, we've got to take a quick break. I mean, this is fascinating here, hearing about all these great dogs. I'm enjoying just sitting back here listening. But we will be right back after these messages. Uh, so stay tuned for more great discussion on great greyhounds. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Greyhounds Make Great Pets with Rory, TJ, and Kathy. To find out more about the show and what we do, please send an email to gmgp3 at yahoo.com. That's gmgp3 at yahoo.com. Now, back to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. And welcome back to the second half of Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Our guest today is Charlie Blanning, talking about his... 10 Greatest Greyhounds in History. And we have our resident co-host, John Parker, in the command of the interview. So take it away, John, and let's return to the rest of our show. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, Charlie, we've made our way, I think, into the mid to late 1800s uh, uh, with Master McGrath. Uh, who's your next pick? Well, after Master McGrath, who, who won the Waterloo Cup three times, we have to turn to that wonderful greyhound called Fullerton. Uh, Fullerton was born in 1887, and whereas Master McGrath seemed to achieve the impossible of winning the Waterloo Cup three times, Fullerton actually managed it, managed to triumph at the Waterloo Cup four times in four years in a row. And he was always thought to be an exceptional greyhound, and after he'd appeared for the first time as a puppy, uh, he ran um, at a meeting called Haydock, which is now a famous British race course for horses. Um, he was auctioned in London uh, at a, pe- a public sale. And a man called Colonel North, who had made a fortune in South America from nitrates, he was known as the Nitrate King, and a very, very wealthy financier, he paid at auction 850 guineas for Fullerton, which in modern money would be 90,000 pounds. So we, we could say over $100,000 was paid for Fullerton after running just once. And his next um, engagement was to run in the Waterloo Cup for the first time. And he got to the final, but the final wasn't run. Uh, he as they said at the time, divided the stake with another dog called Trough End. The reason being was that Colonel North owned both of them. So that rather than uh, run both his dogs together, um, you were not allowed to declare one the winner and say that the other one was the runner-up. In that first year, Fullerton shared the Waterloo Cup with um, his kennel companion, Trough End. But then after that, for the next three years, he proved absolutely unbeatable, and he won the Waterloo Cup three times in a row. Many people will claim that, therefore, his achievement was that much greater even than the legendary Master McGrath. Um, Master McGrath perhaps is better known because, being an Irish dog, he was celebrated um, in the way that only the Irish can. But um, Fullerton... His, his record perhaps is even better than Master McGrath's. One reason why he isn't remembered perhaps uh, as much as he should be was that after he'd won the Waterloo Cup for the fourth time, he retired to stud, as you can imagine, for a very considerable fee, but he was found to be infertile, that he couldn't actually get puppies. And, in fact, the colonel had been wise enough to uh, ensure him with Lloyds of London, and it was the first time 
that Lloyd had to pay out for animal infertility. And um, it, it, it's made, set the marker, if you like, for all the policies that were written afterwards, of course, principally for famous thoroughbreds. But he was the most fabulous greyhound. And it is such a shame that, you know, there, there, so there are no, um, because he could not produce, there are no relatives of him in, at, at, in any line or, or maybe through other um, litter mates or anything like that that you know of? Well, very luckily, he had a younger brother who was imaginatively called Young Fullerton. And although Young Fullerton <laughs> wasn't as good a greyhound as um, the, 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 the original Fullerton, uh, he, he was a pretty good one. He was very fast, if a little ungenuine at times. And he was put to stud and proved a great success. And you will find him in the pedigrees of many greyhounds of today. If you look back towards the turn of the 1900s, young Fullerton will often be found there. He was a great, a, a, a great success. So there was at least that you know, to, 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 to look back on. Um, Fullerton mm-hmm. was famous in retirement because he ran away from his owner. He was um, kenneled at Colonel North's um, marvellous mansion in South London, and Fullerton didn't care for it a great deal. He wanted to go back to his home kennel in Northumberland, and he disappeared and wasn't found for several days, and he was found starving in a village about 40 miles away. And he, a, a, a local postman called Richards um, was, was tipped off to what the dog was. And, and so he was returned to the colonel, and the postman, Richards, received £40, which doesn't sound a great deal today, but of course it was an absolute fortune then. Um, and apart from Fullerton um, uh, again disappearing um, in, in the colonel's care, when the colonel died, the colonel sadly died before Fullerton did, Fullerton was then allowed to go back to Northumberland and spend the last his last day in the kennel where he was originally born. Oh, well, that that Charlie, you are like this wealth of information. I I mean, I, I just your brain is just like filled with little tiny greyhounds. Well, I'm afraid it is. Yes, uh, I can dribble on like this for days without <laughs> stopping. Well. And the reason I have popped in is um, there has been a technical glitch, and uh, John is calling back in, but until he returns, um, why don't we talk about your next greyhound on the list? Yes, well, my next greyhound um, is a, a dog called Farnden Ferry. And now this is a greyhound we were just talking just now about uh, the dogs which were successful at stud, and you can still find in the pedigree of your own greyhound if you look at your Greyhound's pedigree, uh, for instance, on that uh, marvelous site called Greyhound Data, where you can just put a dog's mm-hmm. name in and pop, up comes its pedigree. If you put your own dog's pedigree into Greyhound Data and then walked up the top line, the top line of your dog's pedigree, eventually you will come to Sandon Ferry. Every Greyhound, every modern Greyhound descends in the top line from Sandon Ferry. Uh, he was a, a, a Waterloo Cup winner, and the great stud dogs frequently were, and he only won the Waterloo Cup once, although it was only bad luck which stopped him probably winning three times. Um, he, he's mainly remembered because, apart from his fabulous success at stud and winning the greatest competition of, of, of all, he also ran at another meeting prior to the Waterloo Cup at um, what was known the Netherby Cup, and he ran against a dog called Grasper, and the hare took them all the way up this enormous field, and then all the way back again to where the hare had actually originally come into the field, and both dogs were absolutely exhausted. And they thought Barndon Ferry had actually collapsed, and his trainer, Tom Wright, took him back to the horse-drawn cart, which they used to ferry the dogs around, in, and he thought that Farndon Ferry was dead. And he put him in the back of the cart, and just half an hour later, he thought he saw the dog's eye blink, and he knew (coughs) that the dog was still alive. 
and only five or six months later, um, he sufficiently recovered that he won the Waterloo Cup. It was the most extraordinary comeback, probably, in the history of Greyhounds. But um, definitely, thank goodness he did survive, because there wouldn't be any modern Greyhounds as they <laughs> are today if it wasn't for Farndon Ferry. And uh, <clears throat> uh, this is John. I'm back. We had a we had a temporary powder at power outage here. And that takes everything that I have that I was calling on down. And so I'm back. I'm sorry I missed the rest of the discussion on uh, Fullerton, Charlie. He's certainly my pick for the greatest greyhound in history. But uh, you can't take anything away from well, Farndon can... Ferry. You can listen on the on the replay, John. You can catch it all. It was fascinating. So yeah, continue I absolutely on. will. So uh, Farndon Ferry, did you mention Charlie that he's on page uh, 387 of the book? I believe. John, should we go on? Do we still have Charlie? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, very good. So Farnan Ferry is on page 387. Is that correct? Uh, let me have a look. That's absolutely right, yes. John, I think what we'll do now is uh, quickly move on to D-Rock. Uh, D-Rock, you'll remember, is the, the dog that you use as the title photograph on your own website, The Greyhound. I mean, he is yes, a, a fabulous-looking dog. I mean, you couldn't think of a better-looking greyhound when you look at that marvelous photograph, which is at the, the top of your Facebook site. And D-Rock won the Waterloo Cup in 1935, and he was the most extraordinary success at Stud because he himself, having won the Waterloo Cup, then fired four winners of the Waterloo Cup in a row. And when you look at that photograph and see what, to me, is at least the perfect specimen of a greyhound, one shouldn't be surprised. 429, I believe, is the, uh, the photograph to be found there on page 429. Yes, that's the same photograph that you use. You'll, you'll find it on page 429. I'm an absolutely yes. marvelous-looking greyhound. What a lovely greyhound. And, and if you want to show whenever we get into a discussion of, of the, um, the written standard for the breed that the, the show folks like, I always say, you don't need a written standard. Just look at photographs of, of uh, greyhounds like D-Rock or Fullerton. That tells you all you need to know about what a greyhound should look like. That's right. That's right. Um, he, he, to me, is a, a perfect specimen. Um, should we move on? And it, it, a little bit about D Rock's uh, uh, breeding prowess. Didn't he? Didn't he sire a Waterloo Cup winner or two? Yes, you probably missed that. Um, he sired four winners in a row. That's amazing. Between nineteen well, thirty-nine and nineteen forty-two. Let's, let's do move on to your next pick. Yes. Well, I thought I mean, D Rock, of course, was running in the middle of the nineteen thirties. And by this stage, of, as, as we would know, greyhound racing had started. And I think it's probably time that we had a dog which represents uh, everything that's, that's, that's good about track, uh, track racing, as we might call it. And that was the legendary Mick the Miller. Uh, Mick the Miller was... Page 460, Irish. I believe, of the book. Yeah, on page 460, you'll find a, 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 a photograph of him. And... Mick, in a way, was the dog which popularized greyhound racing in the United Kingdom. Um, he came over from Ireland with a tremendous record in 1929, and um, he had already um, won a, 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 a numbers of races in Ireland, and he came over to contest the 1929 Greyhound Derby, and he was owned by uh, an Irish Roman Catholic priest called um, Father Martin Brophy. And the father, good father brought him over, but as soon as he had won his first heat of the Greyhound Derby, uh, he was auctioned on the steps of the stadium where the race was run, which was the White City Stadium in London. And um, a bookmaker called Albert Williams paid 800 guineas for him uh, on the spot, and... It was in Albert Williams's name that um, Mick the Miller actually won 
1929 Greyhound Derby. Uh, but that was only the beginning of a, of a quite fabulous career because he went on to win the Derby again in 1930. He, in 1930, he set up a record of 19 consecutive wins, which remained a record in the sport across the whole of the world until I think a dog called Joe Dump um, in the United States, I think in the 1970s, managed to beat it. But it took them 40 years to beat Mick the Miller's consecutive wins record. Um, he won other classics as well. He won another classic called the Cesarewicz and another one called the St. Ledger. That was his last race. And he, everywhere he went, the crowds flocked to see him. When he won the Derby in 1929, you know, think of this. Anyone who's listening who goes to the Greyhound track today, there were 100,000 people there. 100,000 packed into the White City Stadium to see him do it. Um, he, he was popular not because, just because he won, but he was also um, a great personality. Um, he was a very gentle dog. He loved racing. Um, if, you, if you walked him, they, they, a few years after he'd retired, they took him back to the White City as in a parade of um, great champions. And that, as, as, as they walked him past the traps, he lunged towards them <coughs> in an attempt to get in the box to race again. <laughs> Not unusual for some of our retired dogs that go back to the tracks for... Uh Greyhound gatherings and so forth, but he was definitely had the heart of a champion. I, I believe he yeah. was the only champion runner to ever star in a movie. Tell us about that. Yes, he, he, um, this was in 1934. He, he, he took part in a, a film called Wild Boy, uh, which was a feature film made in England. It, it's, it's a fascinating film to anyone who's interested in greyhound racing because it shows uh, the White City Stadium and the North Hall Kennels, where all the dogs were trained in the north of London. Um, it was, you know, a lot of it is shot on location. And Mick the Miller himself, you know, <laughs> you know played, plays the lead role. It starts, by the way, with a scene at the Waterloo Cup, uh, would you believe? It, it, it's, it's a marvellous film for anyone who loves greyhound racing or loves, gray, you know, love, loves film history, for that matter. And you can see from it why he was such a great personality. And why the crowds they loved him. Yeah, what a dog. They seem to what put it on YouTube every now and then, and then it'll disappear. But if you uh, if you search for it every now and then, you can find it. And I would call it great cinema, but if you're a Greyhound yeah. lover, it's a marvelous movie. So look for it and, and see if you can watch it from time to time. Yeah. So let's move on, then, Charlie, to our, uh, our next one. Um, well, the dog which I've chosen next, I, I, I felt, because, of course, so many of our listeners are, are in the United States. There's a, a dog called For Freedom. And we backtracked a bit here because For Freedom was, was born in 1896. But um, why he's famous is that in those days in um, America, and particularly in San Francisco, um, enclosed courting, as it's known, was enormously popular. And um, at, in San Francisco, the great coursing parks, Ingleside, and what was known as the Union, were tremendously popular with, with, with the people of San Francisco. They ran on Saturdays and Sunday afternoons, and they flocked there in their thousands on, on, on streetcars to see the dogs run. And for freedom was the, great, the greatest champion um, of the San Francisco coursing enclosures. He was actually um, an English dog, and he was bought by a man called John Rossiter, who was a great shipping man uh, in San Francisco at the time. Uh, John Rossiter bought him from England, and they rushed him over as fast as they could get him over um, by ship and by rail railroad um, to San Francisco. And in fact, he turned up in San Francisco, and they ran him three days later. He only <laughs> just got off the train. He'd been traveling for, I don't know how, you know, I mean, a fortnight or something like that. And they, they ran him at the Union Coursing Park three days after he arrived, and he immediately beat all the local opposition. And in fact, he won nine major competitions 
in a row. And he was never beaten. They couldn't get That's him. That's amazing. Yes. Page uh, 311. $10,000 yeah. dog. I, I can't think that John Rossiter paid $10,000 for him, but they would have been right if they'd said he was worth $10,000. Um, <laughs> in his first season running at uh, the Union Coursing Park, he won £90,000. So we're talking about over $100,000 in today, today's money. Um, he was a quite most fabulous, fabulous dog. Uh, let's move right along. We're getting the signal that we've got a few minutes left. So who's your next dog? Well, I hope we've got time for Mission Boy. Mission Boy was the first great star of the American track. When um, the first American Greyhound track opened at Emeryville in, um, uh, on, you know, uh, uh, on the outskirts of Oakland, on the outskirts of San Francisco in May 1920, uh, Mission Boy was the great star. Um, there again, rather like for freedom, um, 20 years earlier, he couldn't be beat. And all sorts of extraordinary um, claims are made for Mission Boy, all of them different as to just how many races that he won. But he ran, wherever there was a, a Greyhound track in the early 1920s, um, Mission Boy ran there. It was you know, um, it, at Emeryville, Tulsa, uh, East St. Louis, Chicago, Jersey City, you, and eventually at Hialeah in, 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 in Florida. Everywhere they had a Greyhound track, somehow Mission Boy managed to get there and win. Um, and I think Jack Fisher, who was the, the judge at Hialeah in Florida, uh, claimed he won 47 races in a row. That's but amazing. Course, I think our time is... Uh is up, I'm afraid. We, we did leave one, Westmead Hawk. Maybe we can uh, discuss him uh, in the next, the next time. Maybe we can get you and Dennis together to talk about some racing greyhounds. Yep, never mind. We'll get back to them at another time, perhaps, John. So, Kathy, we'll, well I think, John, you've just... Okay, well, John, I think you've just set up another show for us. Charlie, we would love to have you back. You're always interesting, fascinating, and Really just cool for me to listen to because I love the accent. <laughs> exactly. So, John, your job is now to work with uh, Charlie and Dennis to come up with a show. I want to thank uh, Charlie for joining us today. That was a great, some great information. John, thank you for hosting today's show. I want to thank Aaron, our engineer, Tacey, our producer. I want to remind everyone, have a great, safe weekend. Hug the hounds of the world. We're off to the showers. Oh! Thank you for listening this week to Greyhounds Make Great Pets. Please join your hosts, Rory Goray, TJ Beter, and Kathy Goray for another edition of our program next Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a wonderful week.